This is an ABC podcast. Well, a very good morning. Welcome to Saturday Extra this Saturday, November the 27th. This morning, the fascinating history of tax down through the millennia. Yes, fascinating's the right word, as we discover the way societies have chosen to levy taxes on their citizens for different reasons, going right back to the ancient Sumerians. It's really the, really the history of human society's evolution to do with exchanges of power between ruler and citizen, about funding wars and offering important lessons for some of our greatest challenges from inequality to climate change plus the strengths and weaknesses of the coalition as it persuades electors during the next election campaign. And later this half hour, is the current casino model still viable? Stephen Main will join us uh, uh, about casinos with swirling investment moves underway, if you've actually happened to glance at the headlines. Samantha Maiden from News.com and Anthony Green joining us after eight on the dilemmas facing the coalition. Last week, we examined Labor's challenges with an election uh, relatively early next year. Also, the history of tax and where it might guide us now. But first, it has been the story of the week uh, because there's a lot to it. On Wednesday, protests in the Solomon Islands capital Honiara turned violent. Police used tear gas and rubber bullets to disperse protesters who were calling for the resignation of Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare. And then on Thursday, things escalated um, with banks, schools, police stations, offices and Chinese-owned businesses especially among the buildings that were reportedly torched. The Australian government has responded to a request for assistance from Prime Minister Sogavare. It's deployed around 100 Australian soldiers and police officers, stressing that it is not taking a position within Solomon Islands internal affairs. It's a little bit of a tricky situation, particularly when you consider the role that great power competition is playing in all this, although there's a lot more to it than that. Joining me now to discuss it are Mihai Sora, a research fellow in the Pacific Islands program at the Lowy Institute and a former Australian diplomat who was posted to Solomon Islands from 2012 to 2014. And Elizabeth Osafello, a freelance journalist based in Honiara. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much, yes, Geraldine. Good morning. Uh, Elizabeth, from your vantage point on the ground, have things calmed down? Uh, yes, good morning. I think. Um, as of um, yesterday, um, things have actually lessened compared to the previous day before. Um, and, and is that is it obvious that there are um, authorities from Australia on the ground, the AFP and soldiers? Is that obvious, or is it very subtle? Um, as of yesterday, um, there was visibility of um, a few Australian uh, police that were seen visibly on the streets of Honiara, um, but um, the Australian um, defence, which arrived later in the evening, and um, I think we're hoping to see more visibility of them on the ground today. 
I think you had a bit of a challenging time getting to work. You're actually a sports reporter, aren't you? You've been suddenly thrown into the midst of all of this. <laughs> yes, I am. And, um, yes, on Wednesday when it all started, um, we were actually in the middle of our sports workshop as well. And then things just went the opposite way on that same day. So we had to um, jump in and then, you know, do do the coverage and try to, um, you know, find out more and talk to the people on the streets. And so, yeah, that was... And you had to dodge stones and tear gas, I think, to get to uh, the other side of Honiara to see the planes arriving with the Australian deployment. Yes, exactly. The timing was just really off. We were heading up towards east um, yesterday and um, we were just right in front of the, the Prime Minister's residence and that's when all the action um, started again. So we were caught right up in the middle of everything yesterday. And can you, would you say that the presence of the Australian forces, if I can put them like that, has changed things? Is, is that how you'd describe it? Has it been received well? Um, I can say that um, a, lot of, a lot of people, um, a lot of families, um, um, they were really, really anticipating and they were asking, when can we see them on, on, on the streets? Um, there's a lot of hope that um, as soon as the forces arrive in Honiara, things will get back to normal as um, the impacts of all of this is starting to take a toll because all the shops are closed and there's no access to ATM machines, they're all empty. There's some ATM machines that have have been vandalised and destroyed. So, um, you know, there's a food shortage, there's rationing of food. So a lot of people are worried and um, they're hopeful that as soon as the Australian um, forces arrive and things will get back to normal as soon as possible. Mm. Look, uh, Mihai Sora, maybe uh, you could help us understand the context of this unrest, please, because it, there's, there's, quite a, there's several factors involved, I understand. Uh, that's right, Geraldine. Um, Prime Minister Sogavari himself has blamed the protests on foreign powers. And certainly there is a geopolitical dimension to um, the structural issues that we're seeing play out today. But really, uh, the underlying conditions uh, that, that led to the protest and that led to the escalation of the protest have been present in Solomon Islands for some time. There is a long history of, of tension and uh, resentment between the Malaita and the central government, the broader context of an uneven distribution of economic development across the country, which um, in this case has been particularly um, uh, taken up by by the province of, of Malaita and Malaita's premier, Daniel Suidani. This has been a sore point for decades um, and is widely regarded as having been at the root of Solomon Islands' internal conflict known as the Tensions Period uh, from 1998 to 2003. Which is when, um, after which uh, we had the commitment to Ramsey, the Solomon Islands um, peacekeeping mission, for want of a better term, um, which, which I think is, plays a very big role in the, in the mindset of, of people on, on the Solomons. Look, there's a very, in the, um, the Australian National University, uh, speakers from the ANU Coral Bell School wrote, uh, the senior fellow there, Dr Sinclair Deneen, uh, put it this way, the civil unrest highlights the fragility of Solomon 
Solomon Islands as a nation, that there's been far too little attention paid uh, to the need to build a sense of national community. It's obviously a long-term task um, and that there are inherently unstable kinds of coalition government that Solomon Islands has had since independence and he called it the patrimonial politics and animates them. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, Look, I I think that is a fair assessment. Politics in Solomon Islands is very fluid. The country itself is made up of many different ethnic groups, language groups, each with their own histories. Um, And since independence in 1978, uh, the central government has has struggled to, to unify um, every every aspect, every corner of the of the archipelago, in in a national vision that encapsulates everyone's shared identity. That is something that is a very challenging task for any entity. If you add in there the, the structural conditions of a country that is economically and developmentally very vulnerable, um, it, it, it is a um, it is a pervasive element in, in the national politics, this maintaining unity while continuing to deliver social services across the archipelago. Are they friends with each other, these different groups? I mean, it's a basic question. Can they talk to each other? Is there intermarriage? Uh, how, how does it work? Look, it's a very complex, uh, a very complex society, a very, um, very heterogeneous um, a mix of, of political identities, you know, essentially in Parliament, um, whenever Parliament sits, the, all of these different groups are talking to each other. They are represented formally in the political system. What you do see from time to time is um, a, a build-up of, of, of resentments and, and interprovincial and interethnic tensions come to the fore. But, you know, the, the unrest that we saw this week, notwithstanding, it, that that uh, that heterogeneous um, conversation is delivered. It, it happens every day in Solomon Islands. So yes, it, it is a fragile piece, but um, more often than not, it, it does function, um, and, and the government does, um, you know, deliver that that political and social service to the people of Solomon Islands. Obviously, it's the sort of place where you don't need any shocks, as somebody once put it to me about another part of the world. You can sort of stumble along, but you don't need any shocks. And I suppose um, the shock of changing the formal alliance from uh, uh, relationships with Taiwan to China in 2019, would that be regarded as a shock? Look, it certainly um, was a hugely significant decision, uh, not just for Solomon Islands, but for the region and globally. It certainly took, uh, it, it drew a lot of attention um, the circumstances of, of that switch where there were allegations that it was accompanied by inducements to MPs, um, even that there were competing inducements um, between Taiwan and China um, over uh, retaining support of, of MPs or winning support for the switch itself, you know, severing ties after 36 years with Taiwan would have certainly um, been a shock to the system, and it would have it would have certainly raised some eyebrows in the population. It was met with criticism by opposition MPs, and what we're seeing today is that it, it was picked up um, by the Malaitan Premier. Um, he's been a vocal critic of that switch ever since, um, and for this week's. Um, this week's unrest, even though you might not hear 
uh, you might not hear calls about geopolitics or um, in the streets as, as people are carrying out in their activity. The Premier himself has drawn that in, into the debate in the comments that he's made to the media from Malaita. I think the Taiwanese are still supporting Malaita, if I read correctly. Well, look, that is another element to it. Um, the arrangement would sit quite awkwardly along subnational to, to national lines. But yes, um, the Premier of Malaita has maintained the province's ties with Taiwan and, and that has been reciprocated to a degree. Um, and certainly um, that, that continued relationship um, in contravention of the central government's position um, contributes to that rift between between the province and the national government at this time. Um, and you made the art- argument in an article this week, uh, Dr Sora, that what we're seeing is in part the destabilising effects of geostrategic competition playing out uh, the, on a small place, which doesn't seem to have any role to play, particularly in, in the big game, but that it can definitely rattle, it can destabilise very fragile arrangements. Look, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that that's been, um, you know, a, a leading element in, in all of the analysis that's come out over this week. But I, I do I do want to stress that, you know, the people most affected by the unrest this week have, have been citizens of Honiara, um, residents of Honiara, citizens of Solomon Islands, many of whom have absolutely nothing to do with, with the geopolitics or even with the political feud playing out between the province and the central government in the targeting of Chinatown, you know, small businesses in that area, many of these businesses have no ties whatsoever to, to Beijing or to Taipei. There are families in Honiara that have been there for, for generations. You know, the, the atmosphere on the ground, um, if I can put it from, you know, from outside the country, what I perceive to be the atmosphere on the ground is one of, of um, you know, uh, of, of anxiety and, and a very troubling scene as, as people... Who who don't have don't have a stake in the geopolitics are, are swept up in this movement and and over the course of the week uh, what began as a protest you know along this provincial central government line really descended um, into a more chaotic uh, scenes where there was no longer a single identifiable grievance and then other structural elements in the society came mm. into play frustrations with the government in general, uh, predominantly young population, um, frustrated with a lack of uh, education and, and job opportunities. Um, and, and you saw people, you know, from different provinces looting alongside each other, as right. it were. Yes. I mean, Elizabeth, what's your take? Do you think people are talking about the big issues or the smaller issues? Um, from on the streets of Honiara, um, we've been talking to a lot of um, people who were who are on the streets for the past couple of days, and the only only thing that was coming up in everybody, in the majority of people, was that they wanted the prime minister to step down. That was the that was the line that was heard over and over and over again on the streets. They just wanted the the prime minister and to did, step did down. Did they say why? Um, they were just, you know, I think it's. Um, with the geopolitics and, you know, the switch from um, Taiwan to China, that only plays a part of it. Um, there's there's a lot of issues too. They were talking about, um, um, there were corruption issues and how how the government is, is handling, um, you know, during times of, uh, of COVID. Right. Um, and so it's just the accumulation of, of, 
of everything. Okay. I noticed, yes. uh, um, thank you, uh, the, yesterday the, the former Australian High Commissioner to Solomon Islands, James Batley, said that Australia's deployment of security personnel to the Solomons was a reminder of the previous Ramsey intervention. This is the interesting part. But it may also be a sign of things to come. He said, and I quote him, we may need to get used to this. Final word, Mihai, is, do you think he's right? Look, until the, the roots of this conflict uh, are addressed um, in a political dialogue that, that acknowledges past grievances and identifies a path forward that all sides can agree to, uh, it is likely that we'll see unrest from time to time emerge in Honiara. Mm. All right. Thank you both very much indeed. Um, Elizabeth Ossofello, I hope you can get back to your sport reporting. Thank you very much indeed. And Mihai Sora, former diplomat, now research fellow at the Pacific Islands Program at the Lowy Institute. Thank you both. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. And uh, coming up here on Saturday Extra, is the financial model for casinos in Australia broken? The last few years have been difficult ones for Australia's casinos, largely because of three Cs, controversy, COVID and China. The controversies that have played Crown Casino, which led to state government inquiries, mean governments might now be wary of the sector, add the impact of COVID and the tensions between China and Australia, which have hit the big VIP spenders, and the sector's not looking promising for big growth anytime soon. Is it even possible? to run a financially viable casino anymore. Well, US private equity and property giant Blackstone uh, m- suggests it might. It could be offering a way forward for Crown Casino with a model that could split the company into rental and license entities. And there is also the idea of mergers running around or of one large consolidated company running all the licences. So what might this mean for all concerned? Business journalist and former director of the Australian Shareholders Association, Stephen Main, has been following this for a while. Welcome back, Stephen. Thanks, Geraldine. Is the financial model for casinos in Australia now broken or is that too pessimistic of you? No, I think it's it's a bit too pessimistic, but it's certainly ex-growth, I think, in using the financial jargon. So the share prices of Crown and Star have, have come down substantially from their highs. They've really done nothing for a decade. And the outlook is gloomy from a regulatory point of view, from a high roller, uh, Chinese high roller point of view, from a COVID point of view. So, yeah, look, they're not going to go broke, but you're not going to see the the profits soaring and you're not going to see new big investments uh, making their facilities even fancier uh, once the current Brisbane facility is completed next year. Uh, Elizabeth Knight, the respected business columnist on the uh, Nine Papers, she had a final um, a paragraph yesterday. Thanks to already started enhanced regulation by various state governments, Australian casinos will experience increases to their costs and they will find that, quotes, the cost of doing business properly and within regulatory parameters exceeds their historical cost of doing business. Now, that seemed to suggest the model is just won't be what it was. Well, I certainly agree with that. It's it's not going to be booming, but it's not going to be diminished to something like, you know, the UK casino industry, which is really boutique and small, sort of small London clubs, because they just were never given lucrative licences with, uh, you know, really addictive poker machines and unlimited tables and all the things that our casinos have got. So, I mean... Star and Crown between them were taking, before COVID, 
we're taking about 1.4 billion a year from poker machine gamblers alone, and that was 10% of the 14 billion dollars that uh, that uh, Australians lose on poker machines. That's not going to change because there's no regulatory proposal to reduce the 10 dollar maximum bet at Crown or Star or stop them from being 24 hour venues. So that will still be a lucrative core. A gr- a grind for them in, in terms of the regular business and they've got monopolies over the table games and Sydney and Melbourne are, you know, it's, and Perth are some of the biggest, uh, you know, prosperous cities and if you've got a monopoly over all table gaming in those cities, then, you know, you're going to pick up a few hundred million even if it's just from the locals uh, without having the, you know, the 700 million which is what the, the Crown Melbourne high roller revenue peaked at. I think mm. it was 2015. So you'll never get back to 700 million in one casino from the high rollers, but they will still have billions in revenue and they'll make solid profits. It just won't be the upside that we previously had. Is that why Blackstone, which does know its onions, is so interested? Yes. Well, Blackstone is the world's largest owner of real estate and, uh, you know, their executive chairman, uh, Stephen Schwartzman, he's a good mate of Donald Trump, a fellow New Yorker. He's, he's worth uh, $20 billion. He's a smart guy. So the fact that they're offering to buy Crown for $10 billion tells you that they see value in the business, certainly in the property and Blackstone is expected would separate out the property from the operations, but they also own a number of operating casinos in Las Vegas. So they see value. And if you look at Crown Melbourne, I mean, it is, it is it's the equivalent of, of two city blocks. It's twice as big as the second biggest building in Australia, which is Parliament House in Canberra. It is absolutely massive. And so there's, there's clearly, you know, billions of dollars of property value just there, right in the middle of the world's most livable city pre-COVID. So that's the sort of value that they're, they're seeing. And um, and I don't think they'll be allowed to buy because I think the state regulators will, will tell an aggressive Donald Trump billionaire mate to go away rather than have regulatory approval to come and run our sensitive casinos after all these scandals in recent years. Uh, but that's another question. That probably explains why the share price is trading at a 10% discount to what Blackstone is offering because the market just does not believe that Blackstone, world's most valuable private equity firm, will be allowed to spend $10 billion taking control of our biggest and most powerful and politically sensitive casino company. Um, a few years ago, it bought that one of those Las Vegas casinos and, and successfully turned it around and sold it, I think, for about $8 billion profit this year. So, I mean, they clearly do know how to do business. I, I, I'm a little surprised to hear you uh, so sort of emphatic about the idea that uh, regulators won't let it happen. Well, I just think that uh, you're going to have to get three state governments to approve. And I mean, if you're really worried about responsible gaming, do you really want to give it to a a foreign private equity firm, which is going to drive it really hard? I mean, the culture of private equity is ruthless. And I think that the regulators and the government are going to want the transparency that comes from being a, a publicly listed, you know, ASX listed company where the profits are made public to the community, you know, it's transparent, there's a shareholders meeting. If Blackstone buys it, the, the casinos just disappear into some hidden fund. There's no transparency on the data. So I just cannot see uh, that the regulators will will sign off on this idea. I think that there are some assets which are, are, are too sensitive to sell to some foreign giant. And after all these sensitivities about money laundering and everything else, I can't see state regulators saying, yeah, sure, 
let some foreign giant have it and uh, mm. and it'll just disappear into some fund. Even if maybe there's a suggestion that they get more revenue, I mean, it's been sort of the core of people like you and, and Tim Costello's sort of uh, activism that, you know, that the state budgets are now sort of um, drip-fed on um, on revenues from gambling, on on um, consoli- you know contributions to consolidated revenue. So you can't see sort of some quiet deal behind the scenes. You just think that would be too politically unpalatable. Well, look, Victoria's debt is going to be $165 billion by the end of 2024 and uh, the Crown at the moment is delivering about $230 million a year and the state budget, including all federal monies and GST, is, is over $70 billion. So it's, a, it's actually a drop in the bucket. The amount, there's, there's no casino taxes will save our budgets scenario. It, it's, it's point something. It's, it's tiny digits on the dial. So I think that they're going to be actually more focused on having a responsible operator, a transparent operator, an operator they can control. And I think that public companies are far more, in, in Australia, far more controllable than, than, I mean, no one's ever tried a giant foreign equity, private equity firm owning our biggest gambling companies. Oh, I just can't see it being allowed. And, and what about a big merged single operator from all of ours? Is that possible to emerge from all of this detritus of uh, inquiries? Well, that certainly is more likely. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, the star at the moment is worth uh, $3.5 billion with a share price of $3.61, down from a peak of $6 in 2016, and Crown is valued at $7.6 billion. Um, so put them together and you get an $11 billion giant uh, with casinos in, in Queensland, Victoria, New South Wales and, and Perth. I can see that being approved at a triple C level, and I can see that I, I can see that actually potentially getting up more likely than foreign equity. But I think the logic of that would be you need a national regulator. I mean, it's pointless having all these state-based regulators controlling this um, this great, one great big giant casino company. The only thing that would stop that happening would be state-based parochialism where the states actually Oh, no, want surely casinos. not. <laughs> well, exactly. And the states actually want their casinos maximising their tourism visitation, their tourism revenue, which is what Crown was meant to be originally. It was all about Crown Melbourne and then they should never have been allowed to buy Crown Perth or then build Crown Sydney in the first place. But for some reason, successive Victorian governments allowed Crown to go off and play in Macau and elsewhere and, and rather than just focus on Crown Melbourne. So, again, it would take four stars governments to approve such a merger. That will not be easy, but I think it's more prospective than three state governments approving Blackstone's um, aggressive takeover bid for Crown. And look, finally, Robert Gottliebson in The Australian, um, who's got a good sort of sense of corporate history, did sketch how, in fact, we have this amazing sort of history repeating itself that Lloyd Williams had the big dream of, of Melbourne's Crown Casino and he, he had to sell out to James and Kerry Packer and now James Packer is having to sell out. He's a forced seller as well. If you were sitting in Ziggy Switkowski's shoes, who's the relatively new Crown chairman, um, what would you be doing next? Well, that is actually the most interesting thing of all is the fact that the regulators are forcing James Packer to sell down from 37% to less than 5%. So he will want to sell out uh, for the highest price, um, but he's been given three years to do it. And Blackstone is basically trying to pitch to James Packer. So that is what is forcing the 
corporate action at the moment. So even if Star merges with Crown, that doesn't really solve the solution because if it's an all-shares merger, James Packer still finishes up with more than 20% and he has to get down to, to 5%. So I think that, that ultimately James Packer will just be forced to sell on the open market to institutional ordinary investors and that Crown and Star will go back to being regular public companies with no controlling shareholders, a majority of independent directors and regulators who are firmly in control because there's no billionaire, no aggressive billionaire that they're dealing with. So the days of billionaires controlling our casinos are over and I think that's a good thing. Well, uh, I'd say you'd send up a flare of excitement over that, wouldn't you? Well, I think James is more responsible than anyone else for the the stuff-ups at Crown. So um, I think the ultimate accountability is him not being allowed to control the licence, which is what both both New South Wales and Victoria regulators have said. They've just been a bit generous and given him three years to get there. Mm. Okay, Stephen, uh, one to watch. Thank you very much indeed for that overview. Thanks, Geraldine. Stephen Main, uh, business journalist, and uh, I think that the regulators, thus far the um, comments have suggested that uh, James Packer might have to be out in three years and I think he's asked for five to six in order to sell down. So that's where that is and we'll just see what happens to the Blackstone bid. Um, I I had an interesting remark here from one of our texters who said um, that in fact their nephew had been on permanent, basically, rotation um, as an AFP officer to the Solomons ever since 2003, that that has never gone away. So that was an interesting, I certainly wasn't quite aware of that. And just a quick mention, I was sad to see this week that the Lebanon, as they, uh, the um, independent uh, newspaper said, lost a pillar of independent journalism when the Daily Star, Lebanon's oldest English language newspaper, has become the latest casualty of the country's economic meltdown. It was a 70-year run. We used to interview Rami Khoury fairly regularly. He's moved now. Uh, He was the uh, editor of the Daily Star. So that was um, really, I think, a very sad development, as they said, that uh, it's one of the few things that could hold, few outlets that could hold the political class to some sort of accountability. And now it's gone. Uh, So a lot more seems to be going as well in Lebanon. We'll be back to discuss the dilemmas facing the Liberals after eight. Well, hello there. Lovely to have your company. I'm sure for a lot of you, the weather is keeping you inside. Good luck if it's not. Um, And uh, I think you'll enjoy our next hour. We've got a really interesting history of tax. Believe me, it'll get you in, I'm pretty sure. And also, um, uh, we'll also be looking at our 50 things that made the, the modern economy. Now, it's been a tough week for the government, you'd have to agree, even considering that the final two sitting weeks before Christmas are often a bit of a messy time in Parliament. The Prime Minister's seen revolts from the right and left factions of his party this week, anti-vax mandate protests across the country on one side, and perceptions of a lack of openness, pardon me, at the other end of the spectrum, are leaving the government in a particularly tight political spot. At the last election, the Liberal Party won resounding victories in WA and Queensland, which really ensured at federal victory. But how will the two-year pandemic and the newfound power of the Premiers affect the next stage of political life in Australia? It's quite a question. Will we also see a repeat of the Clive Palmer advertising effect? And we haven't even yet talked about issues of character and leadership. 
To wrestle with some of the key issues likely to affect the government's campaign for re-election, I welcome now Samantha Maiden, uh, the political editor of news.com.au and the ABC's election analyst, Anthony Green. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Look, before we go into this past week and its impact, could we go a bit deeper first, please? What has changed, in your view, since the last election? Samantha. Well, I think the most obvious thing that has changed is that Scott Morrison is more of a known political um, quality. So if you think back to the last election, uh, he had been the Prime Minister for a while, um, it was not, you know, a matter of months, but it was less than a year. And so he was a new Prime Minister. Um, there was the unusual circumstance where Bill Shorten had um, been opposition leader for a lot longer than Scott Morrison was Prime Minister and had a lot of policies out there. And the Prime Minister was really able to basically turn it into a referendum on Labor and, and the opposition policies, which was a un, very unusual circumstance. Whereas now um, he's just got less room to move because he was almost a novelty, you mean, then? I think now um, there is more runs on the board. So he has had some obvious um, difficulties, uh, particularly with the vaccine rollout, will be a very interesting question at the next election of whether or not people um, still hold him to account for the problems or whether they say, as obviously the Liberal Party is hoping they will, well, yes, there were some teething problems, but now we are the most vaccinated country in the world and we've gotten on with that and we'll, you know, get on with mm. the rest of uh, business, so to speak. So I think that you know, he was really able to take advantage last time of the fact that people didn't think that he would win that election. People thought that Shorten was going to walk it in and then he was able to very cleverly stitch together a victory which was really almost no change from um, the win, if you call it that. It was obviously not quite as good as they expected um, in the previous election under Malcolm Turnbull but Scott Morrison won a few seats, he lost a few seats, the outcome was a zero-sum game. But I think that this time around, not anyone who's kind of closely watches politics thinks that Scott Morrison won in a landslide because clearly he didn't. But because it was a surprise win, yes. I think sometimes people have it in their head that he won by more than he did. And, Anthony, how would you answer that question, what has changed? Uh, I, think, I think Samantha's summed up the main things from the government side, I think there's two other things. Uh, and I think the COVID situation and the change of profile of the premiers changes the dynamics of the election. But the other issue is just simply Labor is refusing to be the centre of the campaign like they did last time. They're refusing to provide the government a target to attack. And I would also caution, watch what's happening with the minor parties because um, the government's in office because it holds 33 of the 45 seats in Western Australia and Queensland. Now, those two states are traditionally non-Labor states at the federal level. Western Australia's politics has changed dramatically in the last two years. Queensland also re-elected a Labor government. But the swings in Queensland last time weren't on first preferences from Labor to the coalition. They were from Labor to minor parties, and the minor parties, One Nation, UAP, had much stronger preferences 
to the coalition than we've ever seen in a previous election. That's how the swing was was developed in Queensland. It was this shift to minor parties and then stronger preference by Labor, with all the advertising against it, lost itself as a destination for first preferences. And it was also voters did not see it as a destination for second preferences. The oddity at the moment with what we saw with the debate on Tuesday, uh, Monday, about vaccination was what what's going to happen to all those preferences from One Nation and United Australia Party? They seem to be just as cranky with the government as the opposition. And I'm interested to see where Clive Palmer's big advertising spend at the end of the election campaign, where that pivots to this time, because that could have a big impact. Oh, indeed. I mean, I think in, in today's Saturday paper, the, the figures are really extraordinary about just how much... I've just got it here, yes, um, that, say, in in the week from November the 9th, uh, Labor spent 2396 the Liberals spent 3864 um, Pauline Hanson's One Nation spent 1471 In the same week, I mean, this is just staggering, the United Australia Party outlaid $61,307. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. How can our polity survive that? Clive Palmer spent more in the last election campaign than the Coalition and Labor combined. Um, most political parties, knowing they haven't got a lot of money, tend to target their advertising. But Clive Palmer carpet bombs advertising. He doesn't get a lot of votes from it, but he gets what he's achieving. is he, He's prepared to do that. Political parties don't have the money to do it. It's just, it's just it was extraordinary to watch last time. Um, look, we just should say, Labor has to take to take majority government. Labor needs to win seven seats without losing any. That's right, isn't it, Anthony? Uh, yes, it's <laughs> um, yes, that's right. Uh, and, and tell us about uh, um, uh, restructures, please. About um, redistributions is what I'm trying to say. Uh, is there anything we should be knowing there? Oh, there's just basically been the abolition of a Liberal seat in Western Australia, the creation of one in Victoria. Uh, but th- that's that's the main difference. The, I think it's not so – boundaries aren't really an issue of this election. It's just a change in politics since the last election and that uh, the Premier's much more powerful and, you know, it's particularly with Western Australia, it's hard to see how the, the, uh, the laws of gravity can be defied for the Liberal Party given the results of the state election last year. Um, uh, Sam Maiden, uh, how do you uh, balance the role of the premiers with the prime minister? I mean, is that going to last or is there this time-honoured sense of Australian voters that they do distinguish between state politics and federal politics? I think they do distinguish um, between federal and state politics and I think one of the more interesting places to watch um, whether or not what I'm saying holds true will be in Western Australia. So obviously Mark McGowan there is uh, incredibly popular. Um, The lockouts, you know, what the coalition has derisively referred to as the hermit kingdom over there has um, made him very popular. The interesting thing is, um, you know, in the last couple of weeks when I've been talking to Labor people on the ground, they're not as confident that they're going to get some sort of landslide in WA. Um, maybe they're trying to be conservative. There were high hopes at the last election that Western Australia would be a really important, um, you know, state for Bill Shorten. That didn't happen. And then even on early on election night, you know, you started to see those unexpected seats for the coalition in Tasmania. And that was really the beginning of the road uh, to Scott Morrison's uh, unlikely, it would have seen at the time, victory. 
So I think, you know, if the Labor Party can only pick up, say, two seats in WA, um, that, that's going to be a problem and that will tell you that uh, people are not necessarily directly translating their support from Mark McGowan to Anthony Albanese. But at the end of the day, uh, we'll see, right, um, what they will be able to harness in terms of, uh, you know, Labor premiers in Queensland and Victoria and WA uh, and, of course, in the Northern Territory as well, is they will be able to harness all of that infrastructure and all of that power um, in a media sense and, you know, having people on the ground, right, um, in state governments. You're already starting to see that with the premiers have been quite powerful in trying to shut down the Prime Minister when he's engaged in what, you know, they're described as scare campaigns or cozying up to anti-vaxxers as they're describing it. So at the very first sign that the Prime Minister is sotto voce trying to say, you know, it's time for government to get out of your lives, Mm. which I think would be quite a popular message for some people. Some people have been locked up for so long that uh, basically, you know, you, you see Dan Andrews and other state premiers Stephen Miles in Queensland just absolutely pummel that and try and paint him as a sort of person who's cozying up to extremists. Uh, let's get on to this question of leadership and and character um, because it, it is interesting and it seems a little more fluid at the moment, but I really would like to hear what you both think because, again, in the Saturday paper, uh, news poll uh, published this week in The Australian, uh, they alerted me to, to it, that... Um, Uh, has Morrison rating higher than Albanese on being experienced, decisive and strong and on having a vision for Australia? This is Newspol's reading of it. But Albanese outrates Morrison just on understanding the major issues and being trustworthy. He also rates higher on being likeable, caring for people and being in touch with voters. Voters. On arrogance, Albanese scores 38 to Morrison 60. Now, Anthony, do you think that's going to... Yeah, how do you think that is going to solidify or not in this lead-up to the election? Well, the, uh, the, the trust one would be the one that the, the government would be worried about. But then, as we saw with John Howard in 2004, you can, you can pivot that in a different way when you're unexpected. I mean, I, I don't think, I think amongst many people, I was one of those thinking when John Howard called the election and said, this election will be about trust caused most amusement. But he sold that in the campaign. It was trust about the economy and trust about national security. So he sold it. He, he converted what sounded like a negative into a positive. That was that against really, Latham, wasn't it? That was against Latham, mm. yeah. So that was, that was, you know, the so first So it was really words. about Latham, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And mm. that's, that's going to be the government's problem is it doesn't – last time they had Bill Shorten who was unpopular, you know, was, was always had doubts from the public, had this quite extensive and rather disorganised policy agenda. Um, and they just – um, the coalition managed to paint that as, as something the Australian public didn't want. They, they 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 ran a very effective scare campaign against what looked like a radical agenda to a lot of Australian voters, and and they did it. But this time they're finding it very hard to pin Labor to anything that they can run a scare campaign. And and the interesting is to watch the climate change policies over the last two or three weeks. I mean, desperately trying to flush Labor out into something they could attack. 
and Labor has just sort of sat back and said nothing. Hmm. So this trust, I mean, it was interesting, um, Sam Maiden, to see that Bridget Arthur, in her own very interesting way, say, I, I don't think it's right we should be debating religious discrimination when we haven't debated the very thing we said we would, which was some form of Federal Integrity Commission, which that goes to the core of the idea, doesn't it, of trust? Well, I, I don't know if I would entirely agree with that. Um, I suppose there is an issue in terms of an election promise uh, and it hasn't been delivered. Uh, so as far as that goes, yes, that does relate to trust. The Prime Minister obviously has an argument there. It's not a particularly strong one, but his argument is that they have, of course, outlined um, a proposal um, for an independent uh, corruption watchdog mm. It's not one the Labor Party supports, so he was trying to sort of, you know, turn that on Labor, almost implying, well, if you would just agree to our our measures, we would have one. But, you know, the reality is we haven't really seen any legislation, right? We've kind of seen the outline of it. And then he was trying to mount this sort of fairly audacious um, attack, kind of look-over-here tactic of, this incredible attack on ICAC and basically saying that they'd done over, quote, unquote, mm. Gladys Berejiklian, that they were dangerous, that it was a witch hunt. Um, extraordinary things, really, for a Prime Minister to say about a, you know, a properly constituted inquiry in New South Wales that hasn't reported yet. Um, but obviously there's two um, elements to that strategy. One is that he's trying to say, don't talk about that, talk about this. And the other thing is obviously the speculation around the idea that Gladys Berejiklian could still be parachuted into Tony Abbott's old seat in New and South take Wales. Take on Stegall. Yeah, and that would be kind of audacious, but maybe it's just audacious enough to work, right? I mean, yeah. Look, if you think about the last election, that's what I'm really getting at. Are we talking about, and and what will the population be looking at? you know, political uh, machinations or this question of strength and trust. That's really what I'm trying to discern. Well, clearly they're going to be talking about strength and trust, right? They are. And, you know, if you think about uh, John Howard, people didn't necessarily love John Howard, right? He wasn't necessarily a incredibly beloved popular figure, but people thought he was a very effective leader. It was that idea that, you know, He's the boring accountant that you can set and forget and he'll run the country. You might not like him. You like you don't need to like prime ministers, you know, to think that they are effective and they can get the job done. I think that the difficulty uh, for Scott Morrison, um, the challenge for Scott Morrison, um, particularly around that issue of trust and competency, is if you think about the three things that have caused him most trouble politically and in the polls since he became the Prime Minister. Uh, the first issue is in relation to the bushfires when he ran off to Hawaii and said, I don't hold a holes, mate, hold, mate. The second dip in news poll, which was actually larger than the bushfire backlash, was in relation to Brittany Higgins when there was uh, the extraordinary debate that unfolded in the wake of her allegations and then the third dip in news poll, which was, I think, even slightly stronger than Brittany Higgins, was during the disquiet over the vaccine rollout. And the golden thread of all of those events, which may seem not connected, is the issue of competency, um, the competency to run the country in a crisis during the bushfires, 
the competency to know what was going on under his own nose when a woman was allegedly raped at Parliament House and the competency to manage the vaccine rollout. So that's the challenge for the Prime Minister at the next election uh, to say that, you know, it's better to still stick with the devil that you know Mm. as opposed to the Labor Party that will be trying to put the focus on those sort of issues as they did in Parliament this week to remind people about a moment in time where they disliked the Prime Minister or they had questions about his competency. I'm just going to go back to Anthony because one of our texters, and I just want to go back to it, has come in and said, um, Clive Palmer spends money to stop ALP being elected to have an LNP government. It is pure self-interest. It could work well again. The idea that he's anti-ALNP is gaslighting. If you don't acknowledge that, you haven't been watching. (laughs) Now, now, you you did cast doubt about that, uh, the impact, even if that is the plan, Anthony. Well, I would remind the person who texts that that he was a very greatly responsible for bringing down Campbell and Newman as Queensland Premier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, the other thing is, he's look, is he trying to get an LNP governor? Is he trying to elect his own people this time? That's that's the oddity. But also to that that person is that Clive Palmer's preferences never flowed sixty five percent before the last election. So he his preferences played a part in Tony Abbott not getting as big a majority as expected. His preferences played a part in bringing down Campbell Newman. Now, I accept he's no friend of the Labor Party, but don't think... I mean, he's, he's sometimes playing his own game here. Uh, if, the pre- if his preferences do not flow as strongly and if One Nation's preferences don't flow to the coalition as strongly as they did at the last election and as they haven't done previously, then the coalition will struggle in some states. And, and you can see that. And that's why... They were so concerned about that debate in Parliament, in the Senate last week, on that bill. And all those people who deserted, most of them were, were a couple the, of them. The anti-mandating vax. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were Queenslanders. So the, I just, just think um, uh, too many people say the only reason Clive Palmer got up last, the government got up last time was because of Clive Palmer's preferences. No, it's not true. The government got back because Labor had a terrible first preference vote. If Clive Palmer had an impact on the last election, it was his addition on top of the coalition's attacks on Labor. Okay. It's not his preferences. <laughs> uh, well, that's interesting. Uh, look, just, just to sort of come towards the end uh, of that last chaotic week and the emergence of the, the re-emergence of the moderates within the, within the Libs. Now, Michelle Bratton wrote about that this week and that uh, with quite a bit of evidence, I mean, we, we saw it with our very eyes, but more evidence about their decision to make sure they spoke up in party rooms so that the press couldn't, the media couldn't get the impression that was only the 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 right spoke. So do you think, is this a change in the sensibility of the Liberal Party, Anthony? Do you see it like that or not? Oh, look, I think it's always there. I think I think there might have been a few uh, encouraged to, who felt they were stronger to stand up because of what happened on Monday in the anti-vax debate, that, uh, that those people weren't brought into the Prime Ministers for counselling. Um, it's, it seems to be accepted that, that some people can cross the floor and others can't. Right. And I think it's, a few of them just decided to throw an injury. And I think there also there's a little bit of self-interest there. There is concern that that vaccination debate did, probably won't go down as well in Sydney and Melbourne as it did in Queensland. Uh, and, and Sam Maiden, do you see that um, there is a shift? I mean, can you, do you think the public is settled or not as we've got, what, I don't know, five months, four months to go? How would you judge them, the mood of the electorate? No, I don't think it's settled at all. Um, you know, I think that the polls tell us that Labor's going to win. 
But the difficulty I have is when I go around and count the seats, and I'd be interested to see what Anthony thinks of this, um, they are on uh, really 68 seats, but when you count the uh, the new seat in Victoria, we say that they start with 69. So as you said earlier, they need seven seats to win. Now, if they were an absolute shoe-in, right, when I was going around state by state counting the seats that I think they could pick up, you'd probably want to be getting to 10 or 11, right, because they won't win all, they might lose some, you, you know, like. Mm. But when I go around and count the seats and maybe I'm being overly conservative, I can sort of get to seven, I can get to eight, but I'm not sure. Um, there's a couple of seats, you and know. That's losing none, is it? I beg your pardon? That's losing none, is it? Well, the Labor Party, I think, uh, will lose potentially a couple of seats, right? So that makes the bar higher, mm. right? Um, and, you know, clearly the Liberal Party is targeting a whole bunch of seats in New South Wales. Uh, I don't know whether Gladys Berejiklian will come out of the blocks in uh, New South Wales to run there, uh, but, you know, you've got Andrew Constance running. Um, there's a couple of seats like Patterson that might be in play. So, you know, I think it's entirely, like, clearly, will do I think Scott Morrison will lose seats? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but do I think that Anthony Albanese is an absolute shoe-in to win. No, I don't. And I think like all federal elections, it'll be very tight. Um, I think that the, the support for Clive Palmer and the independents uh, may well be higher than people think, and that is obviously a real wild card in terms of the election results as well. Final word, Anthony, could it be a hung parliament in your view, in which case the independents would have a lot of power? Oh, look, the, the more independents you have in parliament, the, the greater the likelihood of a hung parliament. The one thing I'm, I'm cautious about using the current electoral pendulum for is that some of the swings last time were quite peculiar and there are seats there on margins for the Liberal Party which look completely surprising. Page on 9% in New South Wales, banks in New South Wales on 6%. Something went wrong for the Labor Party and right for the coalition in the last election campaign which saw seats behaving very oddly at the last election. I'm just not so sure, therefore, okay. that uh, we're going to see any sort of reliable swing in from seat to seat because of these oddities of the way preferences worked out last time. All right. Well, thank you both very much. We may need to have you back in the new year. Uh, thank you to Sam Maiden, news.com. Thank you, Sam. And uh, Anthony Green, the ABC's election analyst. And thank you for your, all your thoughts coming in as well. Well, up next here on Saturday Extra, from levies on beards to levies on bachelors, we look at the rich history of taxation. Yes, I think we're all familiar with that old saying about the only two certainties in life, death and taxes. And we probably avoid them where we can, or at the very least, we endure them. I'm joined now by two men who would like to change our perception of tax. It's not dry, they say. In fact, tax has a rich and colourful history and it holds lessons for tackling some of the thorniest problems we face today, like inequality and climate change. Michael Keynes, the Deputy Director of the Fiscal Affairs Department at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and Joel Slemrod is a Professor of Economics at the University of Michigan. And together they have laboured long to produce a book which has been much acclaimed titled Rebellion, Rascals and Revenue, Tax Follies and Wisdom Through the Ages. What a title, gentlemen. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no, we're proud of the title. We're proud of the title. Yeah. 
It sure does suggest uh, an exhilaration about this topic, which uh, you don't have to persuade me, but you probably do have to persuade rather a few people. How far back does the history of tax go and why do you think it's important to have an appreciation of this history? First to you, Michael, or Mick, as I think you prefer to be called. Yeah, no, it's great. Well, no, well thanks, first of all, for having us and for sharing your enthusiasm. Yeah, so it goes back pretty much as far as everything goes back in terms of written records. We have, um, going back to ancient Sumer, we have clay tablets that are about taxation. We have Egyptian wall paintings about taxation. And the Rosetta Stone, which uh, enabled the kind of us to understand hieroglyphics, was that was all about taxation. So it goes back as far as, uh, as certainly as far as written records and doubtless even, even further than that. But why it's important? Well, Polly has just shaped everyday lives of ordinary people for millennia. We often think that it's kind of our period that has suffered from high taxation, but really going through uh, history, time has been even harder for many people through the ages. And in the process of interfering with people's everyday lives, it's really shaped our relationship with government. And that feeds in very much even to our national myths about about ourselves and who we are. So um, I'm British, but I'm very aware that in America, for example, you know, the Boston Tea Party is a large part of what America uh, is about, even though it turns out, as we explain in the book, that the Boston Tea Party was actually about a tax cut mm. that the mm. Americans didn't much like. So it's been with us, shaped our lives for so long, continues to do that. It's important too, we think, because... People need to protect themselves against vested interests. And there are all kinds of special groups at at play when it comes to thinking about taxation, trying to kind of hoodwink us as to who's going to really end up paying the tax and what good or bad the tax will do. To pick up one of your examples about death and taxes. So in the US, really a very successful campaign uh, against the estate and gift tax ran by calling it a death tax, Mm. you know, aligning the tax with two things people hate most. So we think, you know, people need to be on the guard against um, being hoodwinked by special interests, which means really thinking a little bit more about tax than we often do. And finally, of course, as you say, tax is actually not boring. There are all kinds of weird and bizarre and outrageous and terrible things that have happened over the centuries in relation to tax. So as you say, basically the message of our book is tax isn't boring. Mm, quite. Um, and one thing, Joel, that does strike me as really fascinating is the intersection between tax and war. And you write that taxation has been both the product and the progenitor of violence. Plunder generates resources that enable more plundering. So develop that idea, please, Joel. Thanks for having us on. Um, a famous political scientist once said that war made the state and the state made war. And that sums up what is a very, very close relationship over history between war and tax systems. It is the vast need of revenue to wage war that has spurred governments to raise tax rates of existing taxes, to enact new taxes, and to streamline tax collection. The what we're now uh, think of as second nature, which is employer withholding of uh, taxes on the employees, that only came in during World War II in the U.S. and the U.K. and other countries because of the vast need for more revenue quickly and the ease it provided the government in collecting revenue from a much smaller number of employers than it would be to have to collect from all the employees. 
And many combatant countries in both World War I and World War II levied excess profits taxes, which are being uh, brought up again today. And another link between war and taxation that is important and fascinating is the sense that the burden of war uh, fell largely on the working and middle class fueled calls for highly progressive tax systems after the war. This was true in World War I and especially true in World War II. The men and women who lost their lives and their limbs were drawn from the broad population. And after the war, it was felt that the tax system should be highly progressive so that at least the burden of tax, if not war, uh, was shared more equitably than otherwise. After World War II and the vast need for revenue, the top tax rates on income, individual income tax rates, stayed over 90%. For almost 20 years after the end of World War II and until the early 60s in both the UK and the US. In the present day, in the, uh, the COVID um, pandemic, some people uh, made reference to it as a, a war against the virus. And many people thought that that same sense might lead to highly progressive taxes. Some people called them solidarity taxes. I think we haven't yet seen that happen. But I think the link is is there. Well, that's so interesting. In other words, they're full of values. Little, and then it's a sort of extrapolating from that the politics that emerges from that, which I don't think people do grasp by and large. I mean, Mick, just the personal income tax uh, levied first of all in Britain, wasn't it? In, in, and then, right. and then it went beyond. Um, yeah. Now, can I just say one of the reasons oh, I'm fascinated by is I was in the UAE um, oh, in the early noughties and watching them because there's no personal income tax or hasn't been in a lot of the Arab countries and, and that it's a mm. huge discussion as to how you do that, <laughs> how you levy a personal income tax. It was quite a revelation to me. Yes, that's right. As well as you say, the income tax really goes back to the Napoleonic Wars in in uh, in England, and I think picked up um, again in many countries in the First World War. I think um, maybe wrong wasn't the first federal income tax in Australia. I think it was something like 1915. But it's true, many countries still struggle with the idea of a of an income tax. Maybe preferring sort of counterintuitively in terms of what many other countries do, sort of going almost first for the value added tax before going for the for the personal income tax. Yeah, I suppose it's that whole idea of fundamental to the democracy world. Modern economies, as we now yeah. sort of know them, really have personal income tax, I think, very much embedded in them. Look, we tend to think, though, I think of taxes as purely about generating revenue, right. but they've also been used as a tool to change behaviour, haven't they, Joel? Oh, absolutely. In, in the book, we tell um, historical stories about tax, which might seem bizarre at first, but have analogs today. And one of our favorite stories is the beard tax of Peter the Great when he decided to modernize Russia to look more like England and France. He took it literally when it came to the nobility, which in Russia had these long, big beards, and and that was not the style in France and England. And um, so what did he come up with? A tax on beards, a beard (laughs) tax. If you were a noble and you were in public you and you had a beard, you had to display a token that showed you'd paid your tax. Now, it probably raised some revenue, but the idea behind the beard tax 
was to induce the nobles to shave their beards so they would look more modern in in uh, Peter's eye anyway. And throughout history, there have been taxes which are exactly designed to change behavior more than raise revenue. Oh, t- tell us about the bachelor taxes. I mean, that <laughs> that's really amazing. Many countries have had uh, bachelor taxes. Some U.S. states have had bachelor taxes. And um, what are they? You can think of a justification for it. Uh, you might argue that, well, bachelors don't have a family to support, so they can uh, afford a, a higher tax. And um, one of our favorite stories from the book is an, a classic example of the kind of avoidance techniques that arise in tax systems. So some countries that had bachelor taxes had a provision which said, well, if you're a bachelor and you tried to get married, but uh, you couldn't find someone who would agree to marry you, you were exempt from the tax. (laughs) Is that true? In Argentina, (laughs) apparently what happened is that there was a profession born called uh, professional lady rejectors. (laughs) For a fee, they would sign a document saying you had indeed asked them for their hand and they had refused. Obviously, the the purpose of this was to, well, I presume the purpose was to to commit people to the production of the next generation of people. I presume that's what it was all about. And also, um, yes, there was a sort of a bias towards family formation. Is is that that the idea? That was the idea. And these somewhat bizarre taxes, though, have a modern, very serious equivalent, which is um, taxes to deal with climate change, such as a carbon tax. Mm -hmm. Yes, it might raise a lot of revenue, but the primary objective is to get businesses and individuals to change their behavior to economize on uh, fossil fuels. Tax on cigarettes, uh, which raises a lot of money in a lot of countries, I think is a bit of both. Uh, Some people are for it because they think it will reduce smoking, which is bad for you and bad for the for the fisc. Uh, But in some countries, it now raises so much revenue that you can see uh, governments sort of stepping away from anti-tobacco regulation because they're afraid of what it's going to do to their tax rate. That is very interesting. Let me tell listeners that uh, Michael Keane and Joel Slemrod are my guests and they've written a book and they're entertaining us uh, about tax through the ages, rebellion, rascals and revenue. Now, one of the most conceptual and challenging questions this book raises, Mick, is how do you make a tax system both fair and efficient? Now, how would you answer that? Is it even possible? Uh, well, that's that's really, I guess, the the biggest question of all. Then that it's the one that kind of emperors and pharaohs and princes have, have struggled with throughout the ages. Because you want a tax to be efficient, in the sense that it doesn't kind of destroy economic activity too much and kind of destroy the goose that lays the golden egg, as it were. But even if governments don't particularly care about fairness in itself, they want it to be fair enough that um, their own government's going to survive, that they're not going to find their own heads stuck on pikes or something at the end of the day. So it's it's the core issue, really. And it, we know if we wanted a really efficient tax, and that was all we cared about, then things would be pretty straightforward. We'd just have a tax that was a what we call a poll tax, the same amount for everybody. Because if it was the same for everyone, mm. you know, there'd be nothing you could do to avoid or ideally even evade the tax. But, of course, you want something that is a little bit tied to some notion of uh, people's ability to pay. <clears throat> and... The history of the last millennia have lots of examples of how governments have tried to do this. I mean, one of uh, one of our favourites is that in medieval England and France, there were taxes that were based on your social class. 
So if you're a duke, you pay this much. If you're an earl, you paid a little bit less and so on right down the social chain. And that you know, has some quite nice properties. Society got a bit more complicated, didn't work. Governments have tried things like taxing windows, which may sound kind of bizarre and quaint, but actually makes some sense in terms of something observable related to people's ability to, to pay the tax. And we sort of now we have the income tax, maybe the wealth tax people talk about. Um, who knows where we'll be in the future? Maybe we'll have other ways of assessing people's inherent ability to pay. But part of the problem with the fairness angle, of course, is that no one's really going to ever agree on what exactly is, is fair. We might have a reasonably scientific sense of a, of a tax as efficient, but there's never going to be full agreement on whether we you know what we're trying to achieve in terms of fairness. The other thing, of course, is that um, it can be misleading just to look at the tax system in terms of fairness because the tax is there to finance something, including the welfare provision that you mentioned earlier. So in some sense, one has to look at the whole package. It's yes. kind of not necessarily right to say, well, the VAT or the GST is regressive and unfair if what it's going to finance is actually pretty progressive. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting, even the, even the terms, you know, progressive and regressive, which I think yeah. uh, were much more used when I was sort of growing up and, and now they're avoided. And we used to have a great line here in Australia, it was a classic thing, you know, you, you want Kerry Packer, you know, the late Kerry uh, Packer, oh, Kerry yeah. Packer paying the same amount as, as the bloke who does his lawns. That's not fair. Right, which, so right. it, it, it was all summed up in that little interchange. Yeah, and I think now we also focus on other other aspects of, uh, of fairness, sort of as between genders, even kind of as between racial aspects of taxation. So there, there are kind of more, all other dimensions of fairness, I think, uh, maybe becoming more prevalent as concerns than they were. Yeah. And Joel, I mean, how much revenue, another very thorny question, should governments raise? Where is that discussion now? Is there a baseline that's needed to have a reasonably well-run state? The right way to think about it is not really how much revenue should governments raise, but how much should governments spend? That's the way to think about this question. How much should government be involved in finance, healthcare, education, defense? And then once that's settled over time, a government should, and indeed in some sense must, raise about the same amount that they spend. And it's back to what Mick said. Of course, there's a connection between the two sides of government, what they're spending and, and what they're raising. You ask if there's a, a minimum amount of revenue for a reasonably uh, well-run state. And that's it's hard to know, um, but it seems like some of the bulwarks of a good society, healthcare, education, a safety net, these things are naturally, not inevitably, but naturally provided by government. So I do think there's a, a minimum amount of tax to provide for the kind of government spending needed for a prosperous yeah. and fair society. You do say today's average tax to GDP ratio is about one third, 30%, so 33% in developed countries, although the tax ratios are quite low in developing countries, usually less than 15%. So Mick, that does say rather a lot. Yes, it does. I think um, there's certainly a kind of a, a very, very general rule of thumb when we think about low-income countries that 15% of GDP is kind of, um, is kind of something that countries might aim at, although, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. But there, there is this notion that um, you need to be above 15 to, to kind of sustain the kind of government that has a, has a reasonable prospects of um, securing the minimum sort of uh, standard of living we, we, we like. And there, there are lots of 
as you say, there are lots of countries that are still below that. And um, when we think, for example, about the ambitiousness of the these sustainable development goals, which are these um, standards of, of well-being that governments and principles committed to meeting but worldwide by 2030, we're, we're a long way off being able to finance those. And that, that's a major issue in these countries is how to get the tax, tax sure. ratio up. Well, that's perfect segue about tax evasion and tax havens, or you call them tax heavens, as you, uh, there has been a recent development on this front at the recent G20 summit in Rome, where leaders of the world's 20 biggest economies endorsed a global minimum tax on big multinational businesses. Now, I presume, Mick, that really pleased you. Do you think it'll have a, a, an effect? Well, it's. I think it's certainly a really historic agreement in the sense that we've had this system of international corporate tax for like a hundred years or so, and that's kind of was clearly uh, becoming outdated. So it's it's important in that there are new principles introduced into the system that even a few years ago you couldn't kind of talk about in respectable <laughs> tax society. And one of those, as you say, is the is the idea of a minimum tax. Now. The immediate impact may not be that great. Um, most of the kind of revenue uh, assessments are relatively, relatively not not game changing. Um, so I think, in a way, the interesting question is going to be whether this deal will kind of survive. Now we've we've kind of maybe opened a bit of a Pandora's box in, in accepting these new principles. So there are many people who say, for example, that you know a minimum rate of fifteen percent may be better than nothing, but it's still to many people very low. Of course, others think it's very high. So I think the question is whether the principle of the minimum tax and this other principle that multinationals will now, to some degree, pay tax in a country simply if they sell there uh, or if they're active there, in, in, if they have customers there, which is, not, which is not the accepted principle up till now. Before, to pay corporate tax in a country, you actually kind of had to have feet on the ground in some sense. So mm. I think the question is where it's going to lead, given to it's a very complicated system. Yeah, look, finally, Joel, what other big challenges do you think tax systems face? Let me just quickly add that these multinational agreements that we just had are an example of how things can change quickly in taxation. Uh, in history, we know the U.S. had no income tax till 1913, but by 1917, we had a 77% top rate. In 1960, there was no value-added tax. Now, 160 countries have it, and it raises a third of all revenue in the world. Looking forward in your question, there's a lot of challenges. There is, in many countries, such as the U.S., a long-term fiscal imbalance, meaning that we've promised spending largely for elderly people, but not only, we've promised spending that far outweighs the taxes in place, and that's going to get only worse as populations age, the COVID-related debt has made the problem even worse. And so these these problems suggest that taxes should probably go up or government should rein in its promises or, or maybe some combination of the two. But in most countries, maybe all countries, it's clear that it's not easy to raise taxes. In the U.S., mm-hmm. the Biden administration set out to raise substantial revenue while shielding all but about the top 1% from more tax. And that is proving to be exceedingly difficult. Add in the uh, the very large inequality and growing inequality in many countries means that tax in the future has a lot of problems to deal with. 
to um, paraphrase a former Prime Minister here in Australia, Paul Keating, this is the debate we have to have. Look, thank you both very much indeed for that skip through a, fa- a really fascinating history, I think. Joel Slimrod and uh, Michael Keane, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jordi. Thanks very much. And uh, Michael and Joel's book is Rebellion, Rascals and Revenue, Tax Follies and Wisdom Through the Ages, published in Australia by New South Books. Well, look, thank you very much for your time today. And thank you to our team, Sky Doherty, Taryn Priyadko, Margie Smithhurst and Hamish Camilleri. Uh, Several of you have written in about our political discussion. Um, Margaret from Canberra says, are you forgetting the rise of the Voices for movement? I think there's a real possibility of independence replacing some of the Liberals and changing the overall outcome quite considerably. Look, we will return to that. Um, So stay tuned. Um, Meantime, here's Jonathan Green. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.